As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals, number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. As an aquaculture business, how do you get all of the experts' mind to have leverage in what you're doing? This episode is dedicated to answering that question. Listen in and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of the Business of Aquaculture podcast. In Season 3, the question that I asked our guests was, what is it that they would want? to advice for aquaculturists? Well, I had several questions, but I asked this question to all of them. So it kicked off with Stephanie Colombo talking about business in aquaculture can make quick decisions. As you know, our industry has a lot of regulations and there's an advantage of being able to make a quick turnaround when you're with a challenge and there's an advantage to be able to do that. She further on share that the focus on sustainability, long-term goals, and thinking about resiliency in the industry. She was, of course, an expert in nutrition, so she specifically talked about feed and what kind of evolution we're seeing in the industry from feeds that are primarily made from fish meal and fish oil to evolving into a more plant-based feed. And other than that, she was also sharing about including new ingredients like microalgae and black soldier flies. And these are the kind of the next generation of ingredients that are even more sustainable because they can be byproducts of other industries or more into reusing and recycling, which I think is amazing for everybody. So it's also about being resilient in the future. And it's all about being sustainable so that we have nutritious seafood for years to come. The next advice was from Eric Enotam, wherein he was talking a lot about getting your data into a digital format because it's not until it's in a digital format can you really analyze and use it for business intelligence or for artificial intelligence. So I think the first step really for any company is to get your data into a digital format. And I'm kind of a little bit out of practice because I was off for a month 
um, to launch season four. And so if I have a lot of mispronunciations in this episode, so I hope you can forgive me. My Filipino English is coming out. <laughs> and he further on recommended to start small in getting your data into digital format. The one thing that he found working with his company is a lot of seafood companies that haven't used a lot of software and are not very digital in their operations. There are lots of learning that goes along. And so taking small steps and learning as you go and being kind of agile as is the way to go. So it doesn't mean that you need to drop a million dollars on a big information technology project. He advised us that it's probably more likely to fail. Take some small steps. Look at what your priorities are. And as you know, in aquaculture, it's really about where are your biggest costs, is your biggest costs and feed. If you're land-based, it might be energy. It may be around animal health. So he ended by saying, just focus on where your cost centers are. Try to get that data into a digital format and take it from there. I really like that. Our next guest, who was RJ Taylor from season three, was talking about farming the same farms over several generations really allows you to take a long-term perspective backward and hopefully stretch that forward too. And one of the things when the fish farming sector was just starting out in central Canada, the people in the area where they were culturing their product and the farmers of his father's generations, access to them was all of your neighbors not knowing that your fish farm was there because there was this fear that they might call a regulator or might be against it in sort of this fear of what people might think if they hear a fish farm. It's happening there. But now, you know, he mentioned that his sister's land and him and their whole team were a lot louder about their farms being there. You know, things like having floats in the local parade, spraying things all over social media. And the amazing thing that they found is that really didn't have to be fearful. People are more open-minded and really liked to be involved as a community. They don't get a lot of negative comments about fish farming or sort of in the area that he's in. It's just people are curious and want to know more. So the big insight generation is the generation of transparency and be really open, sort of having that big gate open at the end of the road for anybody that comes in, there's just the right approach to that. I really like that because I don't know if I mentioned in my previous episodes, but our hatchery is actually in our backyard. And even though we're in a residential area, our hatchery is in a zoning of upland shellfish facility aquaculture. And one of our mandates, it has to be quiet, aesthetically pleasing to die and invisible to die. It's almost not there. But of course, our neighbors already know now because of our public relations management. But it's always been nice to have the support of our neighbors. And then, of course, we have Miss Hell back into the episode wherein she was talking about leveraging existing resources and infrastructure and equipment because if we don't have that, then it's very hard to prosper in this industry. She thought that it's very important for our listeners to know about the Center of Seafood Innovation, which Sounds really fancy, but what they're actually doing is leveraging existing resources in order to help companies. And she gave us practical example of when a company comes to them and they're looking at shelf life extension 
So she had some interest in shelf life extension of live shellfish. So in order to make that happen, they partner and collaborate very closely with the innovation centers in the Atlantic provinces, where they are further ahead than we are here in the Pacific coast of British Columbia in terms of providing supports to the industry. So they're able to find out what they've done there and then work with the local British Columbia suppliers, like a packaging supplier and a gas supplier, and work with their culinary department at the Vancouver Island University and work with a microbiologist at the Vancouver Island University and bring this team approach to solve the problem that the company has. And that can be applied in many different ways. You know, if we're looking at a new product development, I can put a team together as well as identify potential funding sources to help make that project move forward. She is really active on LinkedIn, so make sure that you check out that episode as well from the Center of Seafood Innovation. And of course, we have Stephen Gunther as well. And one of the advice that he gave was that when it comes off back to their founders who are globally assisting the aquaculture industry from all sorts of regions around the world and working with more than 30 species, data is something that there's a plethora of it. There's so much data out there in the industry between all the stakeholders that work in our aquaculture industry. But what there is not, for want of a better word he mentioned, is the kind of standardization of the use of this data. And I kind of agree with this because, as you know, I'm an accountant by profession and as a mechanic, I like standardization and streamlining processes. So this really talked to me a lot about having a standardized use of data in this industry and how we collect the data. So there's consistency and how we can manipulate and analyze the data afterwards. So he mentioned that even if you have a single office or a single company, each person that, for example, has to make a data sheet or a spreadsheet in Excel will do it differently. There's no standardized way. And then when you have to share that data in order to turn it into information to make meaningful decisions, then that becomes an inefficient process because nothing is standardized. And what we're trying to do in Nuitaya, as he mentioned, is help the industry flourish by standardizing and making the collection of data and the validation of data and evaluation of data more sensible to make it more a structured way of dealing with data so that we can turn it into a decision-making information. I love that. But the second portion of his advice is what I love most about communication. And I can't stress this enough. A lot of our guests mentioned this. Because of that, communication, it really helps companies make and market good food based on the food as opposed to based on what people are looking for and what their perceptions are. We also had on the show Mr. Rudberg, and he talked about when he looks at protein production worldwide and how much we are leaning upon ever depleting natural stomachs. The biggest eye-opener for him is as we grow in population in the world, as everybody knows, we really are going to increasingly rely upon aquaculture to provide the needed food for that growing population. And there's just so much opportunity to really increase our tools when it comes to high technology, internet of things, technology. It's just a really interesting time that we can really push the industry forward. So, for example, he gave a technology that can be as simple as you're in the basement that will email people 
if you have a lower basement in your house that gets wet or flooding, if there's water in the basement, they will get an email. Or if the temperature goes below a certain 33 degrees or 35 degrees Fahrenheit in the house, they'll get an email or a text that technology is not wildly expensive. I really like that because we're a small company. And so sometimes you always worry about the expense. So him giving this advice and perspective that you can start small. And he talked about this technology being just $30. Even people at their homes with their blink cameras can turn on and send their phone a picture when there's movements in the yard. He thinks all across the board, as well as in aquaculture, the chemical and physical parameters, there's more and more inexpensive monitoring solutions that really can help inform the aquaculture producer. And then we have one of my favorite guests as well, Nathan Pine Carter, wherein across the board, he said that it's being able to turn our attention to the way a business is set up and being not afraid to make radical changes and to let go of some of the distrust or mistrust in the other companies or competitors, whether it was the very beginning of just handing over core intellectual property to subcontractors and feeling that you can trust them to take your system design and work together. And this has been a core message across the board was having our industry stop the fragmentation. So it really became a core and central part of the ethos of Nathan's company to work in partnership, whether it's with academics or with subcontractors or their suppliers or customers themselves. It really has been totally about leading with trust. Obviously, you need to do your due diligence, he said. Make sure you're working with the right people, but definitely not being too clingy. And he thought if there was any sort of fault in the way the company first began, It was just perhaps the feeling of ownership or possessiveness about that innovation. And in a way, that kind of meant it didn't proceed as quickly or as impactfully as it could have done. So across the board, whatever industry you're in, he was recommending that is the ability to recognize when there's other talents that can be brought into a business. You've got to trust people to let them take hold of it and run with it. So you can find yourself in a fantastic and interesting place in a short space of time. So that would be the best advice I can ever recommend for anybody in this industry. And he also talked about going back to system innovation. We've got a lot of new innovations that are on the slate. 40 systems are in development right now in their company. They have not all come from them. And it's come from conversations with customers. It's come from relationships, from academics. And they're taking the approach of trying to build everything in-house. And if you do that, then you can end up with a juggernaut of a company that moves very slowly. It cannot pivot, not if we're so dynamic. And a bunch of examples that he gave are, there's a lot of this in our industry with this business we're in. It's just taking everything they know and not sharing it with people. And so you're kind of an island there when this industry is so dynamic. So we need to keep a nimble team to keep your interest and your trust and your partnerships. It means that any problems that emerge, you can pivot very quickly and bring in the right expertise to become the leader in your particular field. And I love what he mentioned here because, as you know, I mentioned the word fragmented and 
nascent. I think these are the words that were mentioned in some of the episodes in previous seasons. And it has now starting to bite us in the head because everybody is realizing that sustainable partnerships is one of the biggest thing that's kind of hindering the industry because everybody probably most is still thinking that we can do it on our own way but we can't we need to have an emergence which is the collaboration of all of the brilliant minds in the industry we also have philip shreven who was in the show and talked about growing organically and they have been doing everything on their own internal investments. So they work with a team of people that they know quite well. Most of the people know each other, whether they're strong and weak points. So they went through a little bit of a growth phase in their company. And it's complicated to manage all that. And I can relate to that. But the best advice that he gave was let people be responsible for their own work so that We're not macromanaging everybody so that everybody gets a little bit bored or upset with it, he said. And he thought definitely in the beginning for a small startup CEO, you have the freedom to play around a little bit. So he thought that you should make use of that and try to keep that as long as possible. Because once it starts being formalized and then it becomes a little bit less and less fun, he said. I kind of agree and disagree with that. At the same time, I like being small, but at the same time, there's also some advantages of being big. And I understand being a startup CEO, maybe you have an ownership paradox wherein you do a lot, everything, but that can slow you down. So that's the part where I disagree with that. But he also said that there's a bit of difference, at least from his point of view, that they notice between the real aquaculture people in their team and then the offshore people in their team, the people with the offshore background. They have the natural inclination to want to design and build things that they can manage the environment. So much more in control. If the weather is bad, you can design things that are stronger. But the people with aquaculture background is a little bit more integrated with nature. They are a little more humble towards what's happening around them. They're a little bit more aware of the fact that you cannot manage everything. That if we talk about growth rate of fish or whatever, that's always like the offshore guys. They'll always think again in the spreadsheet and there it is and that's the number and then of course you have this spread and there's this and that and sometimes it's bad luck i can just totally relate to this in our organization and i'm sure most of you as well if you're in a small company wherein you have the people who are out in the field and myself who is a desk manager they call it but it's a combination of both we need both of them one that's grounded in what's happening in the field but also people who can manage from giving the people from the field a bird's eye view of the other side of the coin, if I have to call it that. So it's really nice that we integrate. I think that was the word that he used was integrate this group of people. And then, of course, I was also lucky to have Julie Kochepatov of the Sage podcast. And she found that many of the aquaculturists didn't know how to communicate about their product and communicate in a way that was compelling for people to buy it. So again, talking about communication, they did a lot of work around trying to tell the story of these fisheries and specifically people behind the seafood. And if you ask one thing to tell you, it's the communication aspect. And 
In season one, actually, we also talk about this. Sean of the Global Seafood Alliance is talking about our number one job is actually educating people. And that involves a lot of communication. The second thing that Julie was talking about as advice is being about what's the story behind your product? Because not only these fish are being raised by people, they're eaten by people in the wild problems that you know and in aquaculture too, but problems that occur around fisheries and fish farms are caused by people, the importance of people. So the more we talk about people and the good things that people do, and also the bad things, of course, she thought that the more successful and whatever your definition of success is because it involved people and the more we can raise these issues and then highlight and celebrate the people that are behind our food because she thought it's definitely missing in our industry. And it's missing both in the fisheries, it's missing in agriculture, in blue foods and seafood in general. We don't talk enough about the people behind our products. So that's really good. And it gave me an eye view in terms of, that's very true. Like we talk about the species most of the time that we culture, but what's the story behind that? The BC Shellfish Festival is coming again this June in British Columbia. And one of the things that we always talk about when we do our hatchery tours is how does this company came about? It was my husband and business partner starting being a fisherman, having 10,000 hours under the water as an experience and how he came from a farming background gave him the insight of how he was seeing the devastating impact that's happening. So that's the story behind people. What's the story behind your company? So that was really good. And then we had Finula Queen as well from Australia and C. Kelpie and she talked about being bold enough to be vulnerable and ask everyone, ask the people that they have approached and learned from are diverse and we're all human. We're looking for that solution to save humanity. So we're all in this together. So we need to be bold in our relationships and our interactions. And she mentioned that she's being accused of everything in probably a traditional way of doing business to share and collaborate and She's definitely driven by the outcomes more so than any financial success that they can achieve through their startup. In saying that, her best advice was she'll be driving the bioplastic outcome. It's a wonderful vehicle to move the industry forward and actually commercialize a wonderful regenerative resource. So anywhere they can move that forward and pursuing that relentlessly for sustainability, of course. And then we also have... Susan Farquharson, which, by the way, is also going to be a guest again for season four. So I'm really excited about having her again. We have two people in previous seasons who's going to be a guest again in season four. So well, anyway, Susan was talking about there has not really much changed in the fish farming industry. It's a very important part of our oceans management in regards to climate change, in regards to wild species, and in the particular case in the East Coast, in regards to the recovery and conservation of wild salmon and so many things. So the biggest surprise of all time, whether it be collaborating and another role that she has in the industry is that even though in Atlantic Canada, their polling shows every year that they have a 
strong 80% report for salmon farming in Atlantic Canada, they still don't have the support that recognizes and acknowledges the importance of the industry. And the fact that if you have an 80% support rate for subsector ongoing every year, that's a pretty good telling age for the agencies. This today still surprises her that we're still having those conversations about the value and role of aquaculture. One would think that there would be now an agency at the federal level acknowledging and managing, helping to manage and promoting it. So quite honestly, it's still kind of a surprise. And fascinatingly, actually, when she comes again as a guest, we will find if there's actually a change in this and if there has been progress. So watch out for that episode soon. And then, of course, last but not the least, we have Miss Rosalind Vitel from Panama and talking about sea cucumber from Panacea. Um, as a resident in Panama and somebody with a biology background, we have such a great opportunity. And her advice is that when you look at what's worldwide radar lately it's all about climate change and ocean acidification and blue economy and putting marginalized people to work at something they can succeed in so those factors he mentioned and the challenge is stepping into those one by one getting our message out getting enough people on board with our mission and talking about r&d phase which technically they were in it's crucial that we get the science right and knowing the best feed the best depth and best algae. This is what they're working on right now. So the biggest challenge going forward, of course, with COVID, we had an interesting challenge because it has allowed us to actually rethink everything. And so he was also mentioning that it allowed us to network more because we're able to reach out for more people through, I guess, digitally and electronically. She was promoting Panama, of course, as a very helpful in terms of the government support, which sometimes in other areas are not, but luckily they do have government support in that country. So the industry challenges that they are facing, they get more leverage just because of the federal and governmental support, I mean. So there you have it, all of the brilliant minds from the guests from season three. And thank you very much for supporting our podcast. And I look forward to hearing more about what you're learning from the value that our guests are providing. And I'll see you in season four, episode two. Bye for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues, and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website, www.sustainableaquaculture.ca slash podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture.